Good evening, everyone. I was just thinking, what if it rained for 40 days and 40 nights? <laughs> How long would we survive in our little ark here? Tonight I want to uh, begin with a quote from Albert Einstein, the penultimate scientist. The true value of a human being is determined primarily by the measure and the sense in which he has attained liberation from the self. The true value of a human being, liberation from the self. He was a physicist. I want to talk tonight a little bit about identity and self. When I first heard uh, someone describing on the radio identity theft, I thought, yes. <laughs> Leave the cash. Sometimes I think that uh, the Buddha's teaching can be summarized in a knock-knock joke. So the disciple comes to the master and says, and the master answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? And if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over and over again until you do get it. It is the central question of all the great esoteric teachings through history. The Hopi say you must ask, where, 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 where did I come from? Where am I going? And who am I? Um, Socrates, of course, said, know thyself. The Hindu Advaita masters would say, who is it that's asking the question, who am I? They'll just keep pushing you back against your own uh, desire to know. The Zen, in Zen, they have some colorful ways of putting the question, who is it that's dragging this corpse around? <laughs> or who is it that goes in and out of these six sense doors? The Buddha said, the true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. True happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. Unfortunately, it's one of the absolute hardest things anyone could ever possibly do. We're all born with a case of mistaken identity, believing that we are here, in here, and the world is out there. And very seldom do people recognize that the world is in here. The world is not only in us, the world is moving, moving us. The Buddha's great breakthrough was to see through the membranes of self. We all have a sense of self. Even the tiny little single-celled beings have a little membrane that they extend when there's food in the vicinity or 
retract when there's some danger or threat. But Buddha saw through the membranes and gave us a new story about who we are, a new identity, really. I think it's uh, interesting to note that it didn't always feel this way, the way we feel, to be somebody. The shoes of the self weren't always quite so tight. Uh, if you had approached a medieval peasant or a, a desert nomad a few hundred years ago and said, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't know what you were talking about. There was no sense of individual choice and, and creation of, of you, of a you, with all these, these um, possibilities available. Rollo May, a very famous psychologist of the last century, uh, he says, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. Evidence from uh, early Greek literature suggests that uh, in, in, early Greek, in early Greece, uh, early history of Greece, people thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods, which we, of course, would consider schizophrenic. But, of course, now we consider all the voices in our heads to be ours, which is its own form of delusion. All of life has a sense of self, as I said, but we seem to have come to an uncommon extreme here in the land of personalized license plates. We've lost what anthropologists used to call participation mystique, a sense of being connected to a tribe, to nature, to something bigger than ourselves. We live in, in a time of what's been called a time of amythia, time of, nar in the culture of narcissism. It's interesting, over our history, humans actually have become so arrogant. You know, at one time, I think we felt really a part of the natural unfolding of, of things, perhaps. But, but we've come to believe that the entire universe was made for us. Maybe that was understandable when we knew of one, one galaxy and you know, thought the sun went around the earth. And now we know of like 200 billion galaxies. And do we still believe that the universe was made just for us? It's, it's much harder a, a case to make these days. But we, we, our, our major religions have come to believe that we were specially created and that, um, and actually that the earth is kind of like a training planet. 
you know, it's a place you come to burn off some karma or learn some lessons, and then you get to go off to some other place, or you have another life where you can really, you know, it's really nice. <laughs> Those beliefs really seem dysfunctional to us today, to me. Uh, they take our reverence away from this world, and they remove the human from the web of life. And it may be one reason why we're creating such havoc on the planet is that we don't understand ourselves well enough. We don't see ourselves embedded in these natural processes. As Rick talked about the, the, a couple nights ago. And this extreme individualism is suffocating and it's uh, isolating and it's it makes us sad, and it's a source of, a, I think, a lot of our un unhappiness. Meanwhile, modern science is giving us a whole new story, a whole new guiding mythology, if you will, about who we are. And the news story is telling us that we are intertwined with all and everything. In physics, they, call, they talk about entanglement or the chaos theory. You know, I move my hand and the entire universe is involved. We now know that the elements that make up our body were created in the explosion of supernova in the early history of the universe. We're stardust. We are golden. <laughs> Forget it, I'm sorry. Thich Nhat Hanh says it, oh, well, he says, once I was a cloud, once I was a rock. This is not poetry, this is science. The news story tells us we are related to all the other beings who have ever lived. Really closely related. Related through this miracle molecule, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, which I think is much too cold and clinical a term for this wondrous substance, because this is what really separates life from non-life. I'm trying to create a new acronym Every time you see or hear the letters DNA, please think divine natural abundance. <laughs> because the DNA is made out of four chemical compounds. Depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, DNA will contribute to the growth of a giant sequoia or a rose or an ant or a human being. It's, it's, it's the stuff of life. And with the trees and the grasses and the birds and the animals and the insects and we're all cell brothers, <laughs> cell sisters. Can you dig it? <laughs> I really like that idea. But as you may know, we share 99.999% of our DNA 
99.999% of it is identical to the DNA of the person sitting next to you. Over 98% of our DNA is, is the same as that of chimpanzees. Nearly 90% of our DNA is the same as mice. Something like 60% worms. We share our DNA with worms. And something like 35% with yeast. Yeast. <laughs> the, reason we, the reason that we share so much uh, of this molecule with other mammals especially is that it takes a lot of information to build a basic mammal. You know you have to build a nervous system and a digestive system and senses and instincts and make them all work together and I mean it's it's an it's an enormous amount of information that goes into building a basic mammal and that's primarily who we are uh, on some level we are that our identity is mammalian that's how our eminent scientists classify us you're an animal David Lopez, famous uh, Canadian environmentalist, says, one thing I've been trying to teach people over the years is get in touch with the fact that you're an animal. It's very liberating. Very, very liberating. I know a lot of you are in denial. You know, you go to a supermarket or a cafe and there's a sign in the window, no animals allowed. People walk right through. They just... <laughs> but we are deeply, deeply interrelated to all the life of this planet. And we're made out of all the life that came before us. As Rick... Uh, pointed out with the three brains, you know, his, his lizard and his uh, mouse and his monkey. Um, a very f powerful uh, discovery of, uh, in, the, in the 1960s or 70s, I think, at, at the National Institute of Mental Health, David, Dr. David McLean, studying the evolution of the brain in nature and discovered that we each grow one in the embryo as we're developing uh, first we grow the brain stem and then we grow the, uh, you know, sort of the limbic system or the, uh, the monkey, the, the mouse, and then we grow the new primate part of the brain and the neocortex, uh, you might say the human part of the brain. And research would indicate, serious research would indicate that we n use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that actually consciousness comes in late in the game. You know, it's, it's... We, 
it's so new, the neocortex, it's so new. We really don't know how to use these big brains yet. We, it didn't come with an instruction manual, and we are just struggling to figure it out. And we're, I think we're part of the group that's really starting to understand what we're dealing with in, uh, in this human incarnation, in this animal incarnation. But this, this new story that we're telling about ourselves can lie dormant or rusting in our neocortex. The question is, how do we turn this new understanding, this new knowledge into wisdom? So it becomes uh, how we live. It determines how we live. It informs our behavior. Because how we come to see ourselves in the scheme of things really determines how we feel about our lives and how we treat each other and the environment. It's very important, the story that we tell about what we're doing here. Alan Watts said, we don't need a new Bible, we need a new feeling of what it is to be I. And this is where I think the, the Dharma comes in and meditation practice comes in. It can help reveal our new identity to us, make it come alive. The Buddha laid out the path in the Satipatthana Sutra to develop this quality of mindfulness as we talked about uh, in the first few days, this uh, objective, non-interfering moment, present moment awareness. Um, I think of mindfulness as the opposable thumb of consciousness. It allows us to reach out and take hold of reality in a whole new way. And as I said, I think maybe the first night, that I consider the Buddha to have been a great scientist in that he tried to be as objective as possible about himself as the subject as he was exploring and, uh, and looking at, at this fathom long body in this, in this mind. And the Buddha kept saying throughout his discourses and instructions, one of the things we should do as we're exploring is to ask ourselves, this self, what is its origin? What, is it, what are its causes? What is its ancestry? Not in order to find the answer, but to call into doubt our sense of self itself. So, when I think of how my own practice has really brought me to a, a sense of being part of, of the life of the planet. It, it didn't happen consciously. It just sort of organically revealed itself. 
perhaps starting with being aware of breath. And at first it was an object of concentration, a way to steady my mind and focus on the breath. But after a while, I got my first lesson, really, where I realized the breath was happening. And I wasn't doing the breathing. I was simply receiving the sensations of breath. I was simply the witness. Realizing that breath was happening on its own. I realized that if I, you know, tried to stop breathing, if you tried to stop breathing, you would pass out and fall over and breathing would continue. <laughs> it's like life got into you and demands that you, that you finish this term. <laughs> it goes on within me, without me. Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because we can breathe without thinking, but we can't think without breathing. When you want to talk about our identity, you know, it, there it is. We're, we're breathing creatures. And, and as, you know, Rick, Rick's uh, metta practice or his guided meditation today was so much a part of feeling the whole body breathing. To, you know, to feel that really deeply. And uh, it also, the breath started to become, to me, a sign of life. Which is really primary in my identity, in my sense of self, is, is I'm alive. I mean, it's so fundamental to who we are, that we ignore it, of course. We, we, it's so obvious. And yet, there is some delight can come and some actual shift of a sense of self can come when you feel your aliveness. Let it reverberate. And it happens, and it can happen with the breath. Here's this breathing being. One of the live ones. And every breath you take connects you to Gaia, the, the goddess, this sing, single breathing organism that is the earth. With every breath you take, you exchange nutrients with the, with the plant kingdom. It's one reason why we're so happy with the rain, you know, because then we're going to get more green plants and we're going to get more oxygen. We love our oxygen. But every breath, you can, if with a little reflection, you can feel that you are part of this, this great breathing. We get about 600 million breaths in an average life. Do you know which million you're working on? But focusing on the breath, also I think I start to, to see the breath as being a sign of the mystery itself, the mystery of life itself is in the breath. Kabir, the poet, Persian poet, said, 
Look at the breath within the breath. A similar uh, lesson in identity came with the mindfulness of the body. My first teacher was S.N. Goenka. I was doing the body scan where you move the mind down through the body, feeling sensations. And uh, it was powerful. Like the breath, uh, this practice brought me into my body. I think of it as being uh, my, more and more of my attention, more, more and more of my identity lies in uh, in the fact of my life, not in the story of my life. I've come down from the story of my life to the fact of my life, the breath and the body. Carl Jung says, if you are depressed, you are too high up in the mind. But uh, I'll never forget sitting in, in Goenka's retreats and uh, scanning through the body and feeling the body begin to dissolve. Actually, the body didn't dissolve. My awareness became heightened enough so that I could feel the fact that the body was just vibrations and, and uh, continually transforming particles. And I mean, I don't know what level it was, whether I was experiencing molecules or atoms or what, but it was, there was no solidity there. And Goenka would sit up in front and chant to us, Anicca, Anicca, keep the mind moving through the body, Anicca, impermanent, impermanent. We just get this body for a little while, you know, it's, it's a loner. But again, paying attention to my, my body began to teach me that I don't own it, that I didn't, uh, it's not my creation. It gets tired when it wants to, it gets hungry when it wants to, it uh, gets older without asking me. It, uh, it's like it has its own life. It gets sore when it wants to. And I, I didn't choose this. I mean, no, I don't remember a catalog of choices being offered about what kind of body I would like to live in during this time. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? You just get standard issue, biped, mid-sized mammal, <laughs> big forebrain. The Buddha said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now, it should be felt. Isn't that it? Phenomenal statement. This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now, it should be felt. I, uh, I'm fascinated by trying to figure out the reason for everything that we are and uh, how we're shaped. And, and 
Many causes can be found by looking around in the story of evolution. I think, uh, I think of it as evolution, the story of evolution is everybody's biography. Each of us starts life as a single cell, the shape of an egg. Once the egg is fertilized, the DNA guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, a tubular, a tubular worm-like body, and then the embryo grows rudimentary fins, gills, webbed fingers and toes, the features of reptiles and amphibians, as we cycle through the DNA of our ancient ancestors. And even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. And it all happens in the warm sea of the womb. And at birth, we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. The story of evolution is our collective biography. To see how related we are to other life, just look at the similarities in our design. Almost all other beings, insects, mammals, frogs, birds, we all have a head on one end, an elongated body with a tail pipe, often an elimination tube in the lower end, the body segmented, uh, limbs uh, that uh, offer us mobility, wings, fins, arms, legs, coming out from this long, elongated body. Nature found this one floor plan, this one basic design, and keeps using it over and over again. Why get rid of a good thing, you know? It seems to work. Darwin uh, noticed this. He said, the, the framework of bones being the same in the hand of a man, the wing of a bat, the fin of a porpoise, and the leg of a horse at once explain themselves in the theory of descent with modification. The reason for our common shape is because we all share some common ancestors. Richard Dawkins uh, has us do a little reflection on this. He says, say you have a picture of your great-grandfather. You know, he looks a little bit like you and the family. And if you go back 5,000 great-grandfathers, which everybody can do, of course. Everybody has a 5,000th great-grandfather. And you might, you probably see somebody who's not quite, maybe has a little elongated forehead. Maybe your grandmother would never date him. Uh, it, <laughs> go back a million, or 15, no, uh, 1.5 million great-grandfathers, which all of us can do. And you would see the picture of a fish. We are all related. Microbes. Anushka was talking about that the other day. 
last night. Was it last night only? No, two nights ago. 90% of your body is made up of other living beings. Have you heard that? Billions of them. Molecular biologists say there are at least a thousand, uh, no, not 1,000, 10,000 different species of life in your intestines. Different species of life. Right now, there are more living beings in your mouth than all the humans that ever lived on planet Earth. They have houses, churches, roads in there. There's a whole civilization between your cheeks. It's really, it's really amazing when you think uh, uh, of that. Uh, Lynn Margulis, who was one of the great molecular biologists who passed uh, last year, uh, said, our concept of the individual is purely arbitrary. Each of us is a walking ecosystem. I wonder, you know, do I speak for all those beings? You know, what if they re rebelled? I guess they do from time to time, don't they? The Buddha had a very simple explanation of how you, you know that, you know, uh, this body is not self. The characteristics of non-self in the Anatta Lakana Sutta. The Blessed One said this to the venerable monks. Monks, form is non-self. For if monks' form were self, this form would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to determine form. Let my form be like this, let my form not be like this. But because form is non-self, form leads to affliction, and it's not possible to determine form. And then he goes through all the different aspects of our being. Feeling is non-self, perception is non-self. Consciousness is non-self. We're questioning when we go in and see all this stuff happening. In meditation, we also begin to see our mental and emotional life pouring through our minds. Where does all that stuff come from? Our personality. The geneticists say we're all born with a particular temperament. We run hot or cold. The Greeks used to say our temperament was based on a mixture of four different humors. Black bile, yellow bile, blood, and uh, phlegm. If you had a lot of phlegm, you were phlegmatic. If you had a lot of blood in your mixture, you were warm, sanguine. Almost every culture has had a typography which says that people are born with a particular temper to them, a particular feel to them. I remember when I started meditating, and I've asked other people, and they, uh, they've had 
other Westerners and they had similar experiences. We thought when we first started meditating that we could get a new personality. We, that we could become someone totally different. But everybody who I know has been meditating for 35 or 40 years is pretty much the same. They're the same person they were when they started meditating. Maybe they, they have a lot softer demeanor or in, in the world they're more loving, their hearts are open, you know, and I think they're probably a lot happier than they might have been. But they still have the idiosyncrasies. They still, still have distinctive personalities. Ramdas said... Uh, he still has the same personality he had when he started uh, his spiritual search. He said, but he doesn't take his personality so personally. <laughs> he started to see it uh, like a pet. <laughs> you know, it's always there, and so you kind of take care of it. Sometimes you let it off the leash, but it's not who you are. You begin to learn that in meditation when you see all these this whole constellation of mind states coming through, these desires and these fears and these, you know, uh, particu your particular constellation of uh, conditions that keep arising over and over again. As the Buddha would explain, simply as he did with the form, with body, if you were in charge of your moods, your mind states, You'd be happy all the time, wouldn't you? Of course. But, you know, you get a mixture. You get a mixture. And in meditation practice, we begin to see these patterns coming up. And we see the instincts. We see the animal instincts, the cravings and the, you know, the sexual desire and the hunger. And, the, and we start to see how it's all happening within us and without us. And maybe we start to gain some understanding uh, of the origin of these phenomena and that we can begin to override them. We don't have to be controlled by them. We don't have to follow uh, the laws of our own nature. Or nature wants us to come to a place where we don't have to follow the laws of our own nature. <laughs> Mind states are such an interesting object of, uh, of our uh, attention, deserving of our attention, because they really define what, what, it, what people want to know when they say, how are you? Usually we don't notice mind states because we are caught in them. We're not outside of them. And we can start to learn how to be outside of them and feel them without being identified with them in meditation practice. The Buddha saw that uh, mind states are usually some form of desire or aversion. And that's what rules the world. This is from... Uh, neuroscientist named Mel Melvin Connor. You know Melvin Connor? No? He writes, uh, the motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. 
Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire. Best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. Well, that's, we can see that in meditation. You know, you see the, the mind continually twitching with desires and anxiety. Of course, they hadn't been exposed to Rick before, so. But you can, you know, when you're sitting there, the mind has no shame. Have you ever been at a place that was so wonderful and you wanted to be there? You know, you were there, but you wanted to be there at the same time. (laughs) Kobayashi Isa, a Zen poet, says, I'm in Kyoto, yet I long for Kyoto. (laughs) But you're sitting there, uh, you know, you're sitting there and you're desiring the bell to ring because you're, because first of all, you're you're hurting somewhere, which is quite a common phenomenon in in meditation. You're hurting somewhere. You want it to go away. You want the session to end. You want the bell to ring. Uh, the bell rings, there's a moment of satisfaction. Aha, uh-huh, it's over. You move, uh, there's some relief of the, the pain, and immediately it's like, gee, I don't really want to go for a walk. Uh, maybe I'll go back to my room and look at my stuff for a while. And, and the desire comes, and the aversion comes, and you start to see how, how it just is constant, and, but then you can begin to develop the ability to step back from it all. Latest scientific understanding is a very unromantic view of our cherished sentiments. In his book, The Emotional Brain, this neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux, you know Ledoux? Yeah, okay. I just want to know if we're on the same page here, yeah, with some of this stuff. Uh, he, he writes, emotions are nothing more than the name we give to feelings associated with basic survival functions. The four F's in particular. Fighting, fleeing, feeding, and procreating. <laughs> so in this, in this new scientific light that is being shown on uh, these phenomena and these emotions. Uh, We can see anger or hatred as a a protective uh, response or reaction to try to, you know, protect offspring, property, you know, uh, social position, affection, an evolved aspect of, you know, procreation, desire to to uh, procreate and have children. Uh, What's love got to do with it? Well, you know, that's what we invented to make it even more attractive. I don't want to sound cold and, you know, I probably did just then, but (laughs) this in, in some sense, 
this is what the Buddha wanted, to depersonalize and de-sentimentalize these experiences. Make them universal. Understand their universality. Depersonalize them. And the, the instructions in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta uh, concerning uh, mind states, citta nupasana, uh, the Buddha says, just be aware. There's no judgment. There's no, uh, you should be feeling this way, you should be feeling that way. Some of the instructions, a meditator knows a lustful mind is lustful. A mind free from lust is free from lust. A hating mind is hating. A mind free from hate is a free from hate. Distracted mind is distracted. Even, you know, in meditation, when you sit down and find your mind lost and distracted, you should just know that. It's not like it's bad or wrong. Long before Freud or Darwin, Buddha saw also our instinctual nature. He called instincts underlying tendencies. How are we doing? Well, one, one more little piece here about thinking. I mean, one of the most profound shifts over the years of meditation practice for me has been my relationship to thinking, the thinking mind. We're still friends. But, uh, and we live together, but we're no longer quite so codependent, you know. Uh, I started to uh, have some distance from my thinking mind. At best of times, quite often I'm lost in thought. I don't think of it so much as lost. I mean, I, I, part of it is that I like to think, and it's fun to think, and it can be, uh, and it's a wonderful tool for our species. I mean, it allows us to share uh, common understandings and pass them on, even through time, through generations. It's a brilliant tool, wonderful tool, but it can be a cruel master. And our culture is, you know, fascinated and fixated, actually, on thinking and manipulating thoughts. As Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Actually, he should have said, I think, therefore I think I am. <laughs> but um, before I started practicing mindfulness, I was completely identified with thoughts, completely rolling in whatever thought, you know, was present. It's what we get graded on in our culture, our ability to manipulate our thinking. I, I sometimes reflect that I, I spent the first half of my life learning how to think, and now I'm spending the second half of my life trying to ignore my thinking. What was I thinking? I, <laughs> but of course, we don't make it, thoughts are not bad. That's a common misunderstanding uh, among people who are starting to meditate, uh, that the goal is to get rid of all your thoughts. No, we don't want to get rid of all our thoughts. We can change our relationship to our thinking mind and gain some freedom 
from its, uh, its dictates. Darwin, from his secret notebooks, he was always writing these radical things like species change through time. That was outrageous. He would never would have wanted that, that note to get out during the 100 years ago, you know, 150 years ago. He said in his secret notebook, why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Stephen Jay Gould said, an octopus, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. <laughs> what they're saying is that basically thinking is a, is, is a localized adaption, adaptation uh, to allow us to thrive. And, but I don't know how well we're thinking these days. We may have overthought. Okay. I think it's uh, liberating to view thinking as a biological function, as uh, an organ doing its survival dance, monitoring the world, adjusting behavior, planning, uh, you know, what we're going to do. Um, I sometimes like to think, what, what, were our, what were our ancestors' thoughts 20,000, 30,000 years ago? You know, who's going on the hunt tomorrow? What color should I paint my spear? Who's watching the fire? We have basically the same thoughts, basically the same stuff. Sometime, take a meditation session and just notice how many of your thoughts have something to do with your survival. And that includes your place in the pecking order, of course. Okay. I, I want to get... We've been here too long. Um, well, with mindfulness, we begin to, to see that our mental life and our emotional life go on within us, without us, over and over. We learn to be okay with that, relax our instincts, even learn how to intervene to some degree. Ajahn Chah, famous Thai forest master, says, when we examine all that we call mind, we see only a conglomeration of mental elements, not a self. Feeling, memory, perception are all shifting through the mind like leaves in the wind. We can discover this through meditation. To not take it all so personally. To let life live through us. And I think, and I hope that uh, as we come to see ourselves as part of this experiment of life on earth, that we learn to care more for other forms of life, especially as we see ourselves as part of it, we will begin to care more for other forms of life. That, uh, and our own liberation, our own freedom, is the same thing as deep ecology, is, uh, is practicing being uh, part of the natural processes. Also, as we meditate, we realize that so much of what we're, we're witnessing and 
viewing is, is part of the human condition and it stimulates compassion. We realize that everybody shares the 10,000 joys and sorrows and it teaches us kindness organically. I just want to uh, add a, a kind of hopeful note. Uh, I did that uh, guided practice yesterday about uh, endangered species. Just a, a sense, uh, to have a sense of uh, perspective on uh, this whole problem, all the problems, environmental problems that we're having, to realize that the word, I, I, the word ecology only came into, into public use, wide public use, in 1970. The first UN conference on the environment was also that year or the year after that uh, we are just becoming aware of the damage we're doing to the planet. We are just waking up. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a relatively recent development that we're seeing this. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's reason for hope. It's just a blink of, in a blink of an eye. We're, we've learned that we, you know, we have to simplify, we have to stop burning all this carbon. And so I, I, I like to have some, some hope. <laughs> hope is fun. Hope is good. <laughs> Just a, a caveat here. The, the, all, these, all this biology, all the, the science doesn't in any way explain the great mystery. You know, why is this happening at all? It, the big questions remain there. Uh, and I, I'm kind of glad, you know, we can keep investigating and maybe find some, some better happiness, some more harmonious way of being. But the mystery is always there. All right. Let me just end with uh, Charlie Darwin. The last paragraph from The Origin of Species. There is a simple grandeur in this view of life with its powers of growth, assimilation, and reproduction. Being originally breathed into matter under one or a few forms, and while this, our planet has gone circling on according to fixed laws, and land and water in a cycle of changes have gone on replacing each other. From so simple an origin, through the process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. Endless forms most beautiful and wonderful have been evolved. I think if we could see ourselves in this story of evolution, we would find a new sense of belonging, forgiveness, liberation, happiness, 
awe, as much awe as any Bible in that story. Let's sit for a minute. Endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. Thank you for your attention.